Welcome to Top of the Game with Javier Sade, where we talk to amazing people that are shaping the world. These lightning round talks explore what makes remarkable leaders tick. Thinkers and doers pushing humankind forward and at the top of their games. Impactful insights, global perspectives, valuable wisdom you can use every day in your life and work. This is Top of the Game. Enjoy today's episode. Here's Javier. Roy Swan leads the Ford Foundation's mission investment team, investing a billion dollars of their endowment into opportunities that generate both financial and social returns in the U.S. and the global south. Roy also oversees Ford's program-related investment and its Impact Investing Grants program, dedicated to expanding and strengthening the impact investing field. Previously, he held several roles at Morgan Stanley, including running a $13 billion community development transaction fund, as well as the Morgan Stanley SBIC, and as a chief operating officer of Morgan Stanley Trust. Roy was the founding chief investment officer of NYC's Upper Manhattan Empowerment Zone and served as CFO of Carver Bancorp. Earlier in his career, he held roles at Scadden Arps, First Boston, J.B. Morgan, and Time Warner. He serves on the board of Dalton, Parnassus Funds, and Varro Money. He holds a bachelor's from Princeton and a law degree from Stanford. Enjoy the conversation. Roy Swan, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It's my pleasure. Trust me on that. Uh, there's just so much stuff to talk about with you. Um, it'd be interesting to start sort of at the beginning. I want you to tie it to kind of this remarkable career that you've had around making impact specifically with capital. You've been a CFO of a bank. You now run mission investments at Ford Foundation. You ran Impact Investments at Morgan Stanley, which is where I met you. But something happened in your early years that's kind of set you on a path. Can you describe a little bit of what that could have been? Yeah, that's that is insightful of you. I um, there's very specific foundation I have in the church. I am a preacher's kid, and um, I was taught, among many other things, to whom much is given, much is expected. Mm-hmm. And in my 13, 14 year old brain, I turned that into um, I wanted a job where I'd be paid to help people. And um, I started out uh, knowing that I my parents couldn't afford to get me to college. I knew I needed to get some kind of scholarship. So I figured, why don't I double my odds and do sports and academics? I broke my neck playing football, uh, had was par- paralyzed for a while, but it was the greatest blessing ever because what it did was it shifted me from um, being recruited by football factories to being uh, recruited to Ivy League track teams. I uh, couldn't play football anymore, but I was fast enough and I had the grades um, uh, to get recruited. So that made all the difference in my life. I'm I, The other thing I'll tell you is I'm a failed pre-med. Uh, so I wanted to be a doctor, um, decided not to. And ultimately I found an opportunity, okay, maybe I can't heal people with my hands, but maybe I can touch a lot of people with capital. So um, this is what a, this is kind of a, I'm in a dream job for a failed pre-med. 
Well, we'll get to your current amazing role and trailblazing role in a second. But this, it's interesting because if you would have been a doctor, and I'm sure you would have made an amazing doctor, you would have been paid to help people, right? But that's one at a time. Here, I didn't know the story. I thought I know you well. I didn't know about the breaking your neck and um, uh, and kind of ending up in this incredible path. So kind of lemonade out of lemons is kind of a common theme from people that at the top of the, you know, that achieve at the top of the game. Um, and as I said, before getting into your role at Ford, it'd be interesting, I think, for the listeners to hear from somebody like you, um, there's all this change going on, right? AI is all over the news, the bifurcation of wealth and poverty, like there's all these things in a powder keg of change. And along with that is capitalism evolving, right? Some people call them capitalism to grow, responsible capitalism stakeholder, and you are at the forefront of helping people think through that. So kind of at the 30,000 foot level, Roy, where do you think the, econ the economic system we have relied on for 250 years going? Yeah, I, I hope it goes back to its founding in an unabridged way. And here's what I mean by that. Um, uh, and, and, and what we work on here at the Ford Foundation, we're trying to, to, to get to that point. Um, Adam Smith, who we um, recognize as sort of the founding father of capitalism, um, had two books. He wrote two books, The, uh, the Wealth of Nations, Mm -hmm. But he wrote another book before that called The Theory of Moral Sentiments. And if you read those two books cover to cover, not the abridged versions, but the actual original versions, uh, over 1,300 pages in, in, in the volumes I had, I decided to do that because I couldn't understand how a, the same person that wrote The Theory of Moral Sentiments would have an uh, economic or capitalist system that is ruthless and dehumanizing mm -hmm. in the way ours is. And, and, and you know what the answer was? He did, that was not his message. He actually, he may have used the term invisible hand a few times and in a way that's uh, been taken out of context in a lot of modern usage. Mm -hmm. He talked about a term called the impartial observer, which was, the, which was his way of saying that no economic system, no, so, no society can exist without deep embrace, deep and strong embrace of, 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 of good morals and embrace of paying adequate taxes. In fact, the more you have, the more taxes you should pay. So if you were to read Adam Smith's works in their original form, mm -hmm. and by the way, you don't have to read all 1300 pages. You can read another great book by Harvard professor and Caltech professor. It's called The Big Myth. Um, and that kind of gives a short shorter, much shorter version. But if you if you read what Adam Smith talked about, you'll find amazing similarity. In fact, it's the exact same thing as what we refer to today as stakeholder capitalism. And that is to say, um, in order to have a well-functioning, sustainable, healthy economy, mm -hmm. you have to take care of 
your workers, you have to treat your customers well, you need to take care of your community, and you need to pay taxes. He didn't talk about the environment at that time, uh, but I think you get the picture. So that's that's my hope, and I talk about it, uh, our impact investing work. I talk, I've, I've started using the term patriotic capitalism, and that is capitalism that um, takes into account um, and prioritizes country, democracy, and the common good, which is um, a modern day application of Adam Smith responsible capitalism or stakeholder capitalism, whatever you want to call it. I really like the kind of patriotic bent and I have seen you talk or write about this. You know, and this, you know, when you look over history, the raw force and raw energy of capitalism, which is putting the product, the productive use of capital with the intent of making a private profit is on its face. Um, some people would call it noble, others would call it ruthless. But in fact, when you look at over history, and you're probably one of the people that know the most about this, companies that are looking at all angles, not just the kind of the current form of capitalism, which Milton Friedman uh, crystallized in his 1970 essay about maximizing shareholder profit, that those that have a multidimensional view actually create more value. It's not, it's not zero sum. Um, and there are many examples of this. So what do you think? Uh, so we sort of know what has taken our economic system towards a very short-term quarterly, you know, squeezing EPS, all that stuff that kind of drives our markets. But what do you think it takes for us to, let's call it, take it back to the Smith, you know, the combined book rules. Like what, what do you think it takes? Yeah. Yeah. So I'm going to fast forward to another name you've mentioned, Mil Milton Friedman. Yep. So, so if you read that article, um, and, and at about the middle part of the article, mm -hmm. there is a passage where Milton Friedman says, now, in order to do well, to maximize uh, company value, you may need to treat your employees well. Mm -hmm. You may need to treat your communities well, because, of course, you get the best out of your employees when you treat them well. And of course, you build your brand when you treat a community well. What he was arguing, remember, this is the 70s when, yeah. you know, Lewis Powell had written, you know, what's been uh, become known as the Powell memo. There, people were worried about what I'll say, people said the hippie takeover of America. And there was this fear that if corporations admitted to a notion of social responsibility, um, they would be betraying um, the adulterated um, message around Adam Smith that they used to indoctrinate people around a false narrative. What, what Milton Friedman says is don't call it social responsibility, call it self-interest. Yep. And I call it, I call it enlightened self-interest yep. as opposed to selfishness, by the way. And self-interest um, says um, if you have a population of workers that in recent statistics says 80% of workers are disengaged. Mm -hmm. And of that 80%, 20 percentage points 
are actively disengaged, which means they're actually sabotaging mm -hmm. their employers. And if you've got other research that says um, in the U.S. alone, 550 billion in profits are lost due to disengaged employees. That's everything from attrition to yeah. toxic environments to apps, you know, the cost of replacing. That's 550 billion in profits. Well, if you focus on engagement, which is really about corporate culture, um, which which really means um, forget about this um, chainsaw Al Dunlap. Um, treating mm -hmm. workers as fungible expenses. But if you um, if you look at and this is a kind of funny story to me, Toyota created a foundation in the US with the mission of that foundation being to teach Americans how to produce. And the secret sauce with Toyota is employee engagement because the best operational design, the business school 101 operational design, um, doesn't matter if you don't have engaged an engaged workforce. So our impact and one of our impact investing themes here at the Ford Foundation is quality jobs. And it's really all about what are the things you can do to more deeply engage the workforce? Because if you take care of the workforce, they're going to take care of you. And conceptually, it doesn't take much to realize that. Um, what's interesting about all this, uh, Roy, is that a lot of this stuff is sort of at its root, very common sense, even if you're, let's call it a ruthless capital, whatever moniker you want to use of the, you know, use a chainsaw Dunlap. Um, just a little bit, as you know, these shows are, are short and I want to uh, give you the chance to tell the listeners, which are from all walks of life, just like the guests, a little bit of what you do at Ford, which is pretty unique. Instead of grants, you're making investments. Can you describe in relatively short clip what yeah. it is that you do at Ford? Yeah. So first I'll say my the, the program I run is actually a foundation within the foundation. We have grants, we have catalytic capital that doesn't need to be market rate, but our biggest pool of capital, billion dollars, is market rate. Mm -hmm. And what we've done is we've 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 selected big social problems where we believe we can allocate capital and generate a risk-adjusted market rate of return that uh, can meet the hurdle return rate for an, a perpetual endowed foundation. So our hurdle rate of return is these days close to 10%, 11% because yep. it's our spend rate plus inflation. Yep. And the, the key point here is not every big social problem can be solved with market rate capital. Yep. You need that subsidy capital. But what we've done is we've found areas, I mentioned quality jobs. The other really important area for us is diverse fund managers, because what we found is that diverse fund managers that women and people of color tend to make more diverse choices in the way they allocate their capital. So we've generated a 28% compound annual rate of return over our first five years with a portfolio that instead of being 1.4% allocated to firms owned by women and people of color is 67%, 67% versus 1.4%, 28% compound annual rate of return. Now we don't say that 28%, we're not bragging about that because who knows if it's sustainable. And what I say is even a broken clock is right twice a day. Yeah. However, it is, it is a counterpoint that once again indicates that 
you don't have to sacrifice returns just because you say the word diverse, just because you want to be inclusive. Blended capital uh, is critical. And the fact that, and you and I lived this when I ran that fund of funds in which when you were at Morgan Stanley, we interacted, we did a study of 2,500 people that managed SBICs. And empirically, it is in fact true that if a woman's right signing the check in the front, um, it is four times more likely that a woman signs it in the back and the same with people of color and you are in fact not sacrificing the returns. Roy, I appreciate you being in the show. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. We hope you enjoyed today's conversation. For information and links about today's guests, check out the show notes and visit topofthegame-thepod.com. Your host, Javier Sade, the show Top of the Game. Thanks for listening.